This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Welcome to Culture and Value. My name is Mark English. As I noted in a previous episode, politics in a general sense is difficult to avoid sometimes, especially when you're talking about broad societal and cultural questions. It's always lurking there in the background. It's also relevant in various ways, politics is, to personal values. Our personal values can be seen to shape our politics. But there are no clear distinctions here, and you can also see it the other way around, political perspectives shaping personal values. When the latter occurs, the consequences, more often than not, are unfortunate. Some families are more political than others, and the less political, the better, I'd say, at least if you're interested in family harmony. My father's family was quite political. In particular, my father's two siblings formed something of an alliance against him. He was naturally moderate politically, um, whereas his younger brother and much younger sister, who was known as Bubs until she finally buried that nickname, when she entered a nursing home in her late 80s. As, as I say, my, my dad's brother and sister were on the extreme left, sympathetic to communism and the Soviet Union, and totally opposed to modern wars, which they saw as the work of evil capitalists who were manipulating the populations of Western countries in order to enrich themselves. So when my father joined the army at the beginning of World War II, they ostracized him. Apparently, my aunt even refused to write to him when he was on active duty overseas and very much in harm's way. He'd volunteered to join a commando unit, which operated in the Pacific against the Japanese. My aunt told me years later that um, my father had been motivated by a death wish. But it's not my intention to tell family stories, but simply to make a point about the way politics intrudes in a negative way into family relationships happened back then in the 1930s and 40s and it's happening again now. It's no wonder people compare what is happening today to the 1930s. The parallels are obvious. The issues may be different but politics is again intruding into personal and family relationships. It's a sure sign of a culture in crisis. I talked last time about foreign policy and militarism and the way Political myth and ideology is used to manipulate public opinion and fan the flames of war. And um, that, uh, that episode of the podcast prompted an interesting discussion on a comment thread at the Electric Agra, uh, which I think throws uh, a bit more light on these issues. A number of people were involved, but the bulk of the discussion was back and forth between myself and Alan Tapper, a recently retired academic who has strong views on the responsibility of the US and its Western allies to defend the democracies of East and Southeast Asia from China's expansionist ambitions. The main discussion was between, um, as I say, between myself and Alan, um, who is uh, an old friend, so I'll, I'll use his first name. His first comment began ominously. Mark, I have a lot of objections. I'll just go to the main one. Alan's main concerns related to the Taiwan question and to the need to constrain 
what he sees as China's unprovoked aggressive behavior in the Western Pacific. In response to my claim that China is not trying to impose its ideology on the world at large, Alan gave uh, the example of a, a list of 14 grievances that China had published as an explanation for its economic actions against Australia. He also referred to the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea as a clear imposition on, of China um, upon its, its neighbours. And, um, and he referred to border fighting in India. But these were not attempts to impose its ideology on India or Australia, say. Uh, sure, you can see attempts to impose its ideology on territories like Tibet and Hong Kong, which it claims as being parts of China. And Taiwan, of course, is, is, is in that category. It's one of the territories Beijing claims. If and when, Alan said, China tries to take Taiwan, it will be operating out of its ideology and not out of respect for the sovereignty of its neighbours. Alan rightly points out that um, a sense of honour is involved here. And, and uh, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of the Chinese attitude to Taiwan and the history associated with that, but um, you need to take account of the peculiar nature of Chinese um, nationalism, patriotism. Alan thought America, the bottom line here is that Alan thought that America and its Western allies were right to be involving themselves in the Taiwan issue, as they quite obviously are. Um, I was against intervention, especially military intervention. Until the American occupation um, of Iraq, I was generally more sympathetic to what may be loosely referred to as a neoconservative point of view. You know, I, I probably would have seen things. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that Alan would, would call himself a neoconservative, but his views have something in common with, with the neoconservatives. And um, I'm saying that my views were, um, until the Iraq war, um, more or less along the same lines. Um, but for the better part of the last uh, two decades, I've been I've been doing a lot of um, thinking about about the driving forces and the broad consequences of American foreign policy, and uh, and that of her allies, and um, um, I've I've changed my position. As I said earlier, my father fought in the Pacific during World War Two, and um, he had well-developed views on politics and geopolitics while he was alive and for more than a decade after his death, in fact, I, I shared his, his pro-American point of view to a large extent, Pax Americana and all that. But of course, the world he knew, he died in 1990, the world he knew is gone. The maps still look pretty much the same, but what those colored shapes represent, let's just say that pretty much everything of significance has changed beyond recognition. And when the world changes, we need to review our patterns of thinking accordingly. Speaking in general terms, I'm less inclined to advocate military and political intervention than many others seem to be these days. Um, and, and the reason is, is simple, uh, the dangers of unintended consequences. Um, 
I'll just give a couple of examples of, of how my thinking changed. Uh, a few years ago, uh, some years ago, um, I had a Buddhist friend and um, I was exposed to a lot of talk about the Chinese, what they'd done in, in, in Tibet and, um, and what they were doing in Tibet. And, and through this friend, I met a monk who had first-hand experience uh, of this and um, I was sympathetic to his point of view. About this time, I saw a group of activists who had set up a table in a pedestrian precinct in my local area. And I thought to myself, this is perhaps a cause I could embrace. So I started to approach them, but this thought held me back. My actions could well have unintended consequences. Knowing they had Western support might encourage aggrieved Tibetans to resist the Chinese in more active and aggressive ways than they otherwise would have. And this could lead to the blood of protesters being shed. I had similar thoughts during the Arab Spring and various other uprisings when I saw our Western media basically cheering on the protesters from the sidelines, safe and secure, but praising and therefore implicitly urging on these people who were putting themselves at risk. I have come to despise the media, most of it, but that's another story. Or perhaps it's not another story. The thing is, whatever the merits of whatever, whatever moral case you want to make against China, a major conflict between major powers would lead to the absolute worst consequences. And various well-funded think tanks and media organisations are helping to create just the sort of polarised political environment that makes such a war a politically viable option. In my discussion with Alan, um, I claimed that US foreign policy was being driven by self-interested parties. My follow the money claim was primarily about American and British and perhaps Australian politicians, bureaucrats, investors, assorted decision makers and opinion makers and other agents with links to the military industrial security complex and, and not, um, as Alan suggested, about the general public or ordinary business people. We're talking about the corrupting power of big money. No doubt many are attracted not by the money itself, but by the aura of secrecy, privilege and power which surrounds the operations of these people and which could be seen to bestow a certain status on those directly or indirectly involved. Many, of course, are motivated by high ideals, and I would put Alan in this category. And many of those employed within the national security sphere are honest professionals who do good and valuable work. But when you look at the fake intelligence which was used to justify America's invasion of Iraq and the killing of Saddam Hussein and other similar instances, it becomes very clear that something is amiss uh, has been amiss for quite some time within the national security complex. The privilege of secrecy is being abused. Traditionally, the ethics of secret operations have been consequentialist. The end justifies the means, and we don't want to know too much about the means. Dirty deeds are done under a cloak of secrecy, but they are justified, so the thinking goes, because they are necessary in the circumstances to achieve a good outcome. I'm not necessarily arguing with this. 
but when the outcomes are bad, no such justification is possible. Look at what happened in Iraq or Libya, or consider the results of any number of other US interventions in recent times. Alan talked about the Chinese Communist Party rejecting, quote, the very idea of being criticized even while employing wolf warrior diplomacy. I am not defending the Chinese system, but nor would I be comfortable siding with the media people and others who never lose an opportunity to criticize or insult the Chinese leadership. This is not the way to restore good relations. Much of the rhetoric we are seeing is specifically designed to demonize uh, President uh, Xi and the Co Chinese Communist Party. Is the goal regime change? It looks mighty like it. This policy hasn't worked out too well in the past in relation to other countries. Why should it work with China? And for very obvious reasons, if regime change happens, it will be far better that it occurs without US involvement. The fact that America is involved and deeply involved concerns me greatly. High profile visits to Taiwan by American legislators, American military personnel on the ground in Taiwan, uh, in training roles apparently, Lockheed Martin upgrading fighter planes uh, for the Taiwanese Air Force, um, and so on. Uh, there was, and probably still is, um, involvement in Hong Kong on the part of the Americans, and who knows the extent of involvement on the mainland. It's almost as if the US is deliberately provoking China. I'm not advocating a complete and immediate American withdrawal from the region. Um, but I do question the extent of the American military presence in the Far East and in many other regions far from the homeland. Just look at the number of bases and troop deployments around the world. It's a hangover from another age. It's totally crazy and unsustainable in today's world, in my opinion. The Western Pacific is a strategically sensitive area. What matters is that the sea lanes remain open, whoever is ensuring or enforcing this complete and geographically expansive control by China could be seen to threaten the interests of other trading nations, but a strong Chinese military presence in the waters close to Chinese territory seems justifiable in terms of self-defense and national security. A, a recognition of this could be the basis for um, a, a coming to a, a better uh, understanding with the Chinese. Um, the, the same principles apply, of course, to the US in its region or to any other maritime nation, including, of course, Northeast and Southeast Asian countries. In reality, China will probably dominate its region for years to come because of its economic and military might. But I see no reason why reasonable accommodations cannot be made and maintained with neighboring countries. This will be better achieved without heavy-handed US interventions, in my opinion. Geography matters. Ultimately, neighbors have to work things out between themselves.